0: So what does the future of education and work really look like? And I'll be ready for it. Hi, I'm Mark Washbourne, a CEO of ReadyTech. I've been part of a tech company that spent over 20 years focused on education and employment. In our brand new podcast, it's my hope that alongside my guests, we'll be able to share some insights into what we've gained to unpack what needs to change today and what the future might look like tomorrow. Mm. Let me unveil my first guest, and that is the wonderful Sarah Kaplan from PwC. Thrilled to have Sarah here with me today. We've spoken several times in the past, and it's always engaging. Quick bio on Sarah: This is the this is your life moment, right? Sarah Kaplan is a leading thinker in the world of skills, vocational education, and employment. Sarah has enjoyed a successful career in the UK and Australia, working with industry and government to identify the skills needs of the future. This work has meant advising on how we might society transform the way we deliver and think about education and work. Most recently, Sarah's been helping design completely new routes to professional careers via higher apprenticeships, which I plan to discuss with her today. So, Sarah, let me ask my first question. How the devil are you?
1: <laughs> really well, thanks, Mark.
0: That's good to hear. Sarah, on the podcast, we, uh, we really want to explore what for many people is it a complex journey through education and work. Uh, and uh, it's really a straight line. Uh, So um, do you think you could have predicted your own career pathway?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, My career pathway started with me not knowing what on earth I wanted to do. So I basically went to university. I did a degree in maths because that was my favorite subject. I really enjoyed maths. So I thought, well, I don't know what job I want to do. So I'll just go and do something that I like, which turned out to be the best thing to do, really, because it ended up with me being able to choose just about any job i wanted to do but i ended up leaving university still not really knowing what i what i was destined for so i um i took a job in retail and moved to london and worked in a big department store but my career journey from then has been so varied and basically just um revolved around me looking at things that i thought were interesting and challenging and i would try out so I've um, worked as a logistics manager in a manufacturing company. I have been a pub manager. I have done software sales and support. I've been a a maths and IT lecturer. I've been a registrar um, in a college. I have been, obviously, a management consultant like I am now. So I've done all sorts of different things.
0: So I think on the sort of scale of 1 to 10 on complexity and unpredictability, I think you're sort of in that 9 or 10 sort of mark. So that was a really good opening. Um, so, in, in terms of your, if your career and the work that you're doing now, how do you think that that shaped how you think about your work and how you think about education and, and, and work right now?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of pressure on people to choose a path very early on in their lives. And I think what I've learned is that you don't have to do that. That, um, And increasingly, um, there's so much flexibility and so much change in jobs and pathways I feel like you're best off choosing something you enjoy and that you're passionate about because you're more likely to be good at it. And then you can learn new skills and take on different roles as you go along. So I think that um, having a fixed view of what you need to achieve and having to stick to it is something that is really changing. Um, And flexibility and choice are the way to go.
0: So a lot of that comes right back from school, doesn't it? And from parents and whatever else you know, that we choose a profession and we stick with it. So what what are the green shoots? Or what are you you seeing that's changing and emerging that's sort of breaking up that thinking?
1: Well, a few things. I mean, I read a report yesterday that said that um, traditionally people do 80% of their learning by the time, I think, by the time they're 25. Mm. Um, And actually what's going to happen in the future and increasingly is happening now is that that's going to reverse. And People are going to need to keep learning throughout their lives and upskilling and reskilling because the pace of change is increasing in terms of the skills you need to do jobs. Um, you know, jobs are tasks within jobs are being disrupted. Um, people need to keep up to date and know what gaps are emerging in their skill set and knowing how to fill them. So I think. Um, Having that learning mindset when you go into work is really important, and and remembering that learning doesn't stop when you leave school or when you leave TAFE or college or university, it carries on.
0: Well, I think we don't we don't really have the culture of that right now, do we? So what what do you think needs to to change in our you know in mindsets, uh, both from employer's perspective uh, as well as the uh, the worker. Uh, to, to sort of adapt this thinking of um, lifelong learning.
1: So I think it's it's a three part um, change actually. So from an employer perspective, um, employers need to be really thinking about what is happening to their business, what is changing, what does that mean for the workforce, what does it mean for the skills that they have within that workforce, and then um, how are they going to help people that they employ to gain those new skills that are going to be required. So. That The employer needs to be dynamic in thinking about this and planning how the, where the business is going to go. Um, individuals, as I said, need to have that learning mindset and recognize that they are going to need to keep upskilling and reskilling and think about what that means for them and how they're going to achieve it. But I think the bigger change almost is for the education system. Yeah, so absolutely. Um, instead of thinking about learning and education in, in big chunks, thinking about that um, gap filling, that need to... Um, keep learning new subsets, new skills, new skill sets, and adapting the current education environment to be able to meet those needs. So people talk a lot about micro-credentials, about being able to stack qualifications, build qualifications up from smaller parts, both in higher education and in vocational education. And I think increasingly that's what we need to see happening in the education system.
0: So really big question for you, and I think you, more than many people I know, live in the heart of this.
1: How relevant is the tertiary education
0: that that people are receiving, particularly young people are receiving for today's employers?
1: Um, I think it's mixed. So um, I know that in particularly fast moving occupations, such as in the IT sector, um, there is a bit of frustration in some employers about the fact that people are coming out of university And they don't necessarily have the most up-to-date skill set and knowledge. And they're often having to do some retraining to enable people to to land in the job straight away or, you know, in a short space of time. So I think one of the issues is that we still have quite a traditional approach to tertiary education. It's in, in higher terms, it's based on a three or four year degree program after which you go into a job. Now, increasingly, we're seeing people try to incorporate work into degree programs, but I still think there's a, a lot further to go. In the US, for example, universities are stripping out the knowledge content of degree programs. They're expecting students to be able to find that knowledge themselves, and then they come in and synthesize it and use it to pro- solve problems and so on. We can definitely look at different models where either people do a degree in a shorter period of time or like say the higher apprenticeship model and degree apprenticeships where people go into work, but they learn whilst in the workplace, they learn alongside mm-hmm. earning um, so that the, the program that they are following is much more relevant and aligned to the work that they're doing. They get through faster they learn about business and work at the same time and they're much more productive in a in a much shorter period so that that's better for the employer as well as themselves so i think there are a whole load of different models that we need to be exploring
0: you mentioned higher apprenticeships i'd love, love to come back to that if we can mm. but if you look at some of the modern skills there that, that are required be it something like cybersecurity right here's probably courses that need to be changed and adapted multiple mm. times a year i think you're probably seeing you know employers taking that on themselves or trying to work more closely with education providers. Are you seeing the big trends there, and how do you think we can fix that?
1: So, yeah, I mean, cyber is a really good example of the national training system being a bit slow to react with that. So... Some very entrepreneurial, enterprising organizations said, right, we're going to create some cyber qualifications. We're going to work with employers. We're going to help them look at new training programs. They've done that. In the meantime, the national system is catching up and Mm -hmm. cyber qualifications will become mainstream so that you can either take a qualification that will enable you to become a cyber professional Or I would predict that just about everybody is going to need a certain level of cyber skills, um, no matter what job they're doing. So to look at your own personal security, your workplace security, and so you'll be able to incorporate cyber skills into Mm. other qualifications. Cyber is only one example. Um, What we need to do is look at the national training system and say, okay, how can we make it more responsive? Mm. How can it keep up with the fast pace of change? one way of doing that is by creating skill sets um, so that you can pick those up as things change, they're more reactive, you can use them to build up towards full qualifications. And I think if we go down that route, that's going to really help us make sure that the Australian workforce can stay at the forefront.
0: Because education is is big business here, right? Education is our third biggest export. Yeah, I heard recently that we We're second most popular destination in the world now for international students just past the UK. I think, you know, we're punching above our weight here, right? So um, this needs uh, a lot of thought and and investment in the future.
1: It does. I mean, when I travel overseas and go to different countries, the Australian education system is held in very high regard. People envy what we have here in Australia. Sometimes I don't think we realise how much and we sometimes talk it down. But other people think it's fantastic. And you're absolutely right. You know, we are drawing in way above our weight in terms of international students, which is very good for the economy. It's very good for Australian universities and increasingly for the vocational education system, who are also part of that international education mm, sector. Yeah.
0: So on, back to that topic of tertiary education and young people, You know, increasingly we're seeing these reports that they're leaving university. They can't get the jobs in the areas in which they studied, how are young people starting to see this? Uh, particularly when you know they're, they're coming out with, you know, for example, uh, in, uh, student debt.
1: So, I mean, if you look at what's happened in the UK, where I used to work until about four and a bit years ago, what's happened over there is that young people have realised there are other choices, so they can go to university and study a traditional degree. Um, they might get some work experience alongside that, or now. They have a very mature system of higher apprenticeship and degree apprenticeship, so they can choose that route, which will take them straight into a job where they don't end up having a a loan and a debt. They can earn from the beginning and still have a pathway if they want to to a degree. That system over there started maybe six years ago now and is very mature. It's been adopted by you know over two hundred different sectors. You can go down alternative pathways. Here in Australia, we're just starting that. There was a a couple of pilots last year, and those are rolling out now. So I think increasingly young people are placing more importance on why they are continuing with their study. So is doing a degree going to help them to get a job? Where are the um, statistics and data that show that? So they're using things like QUILT, the Quality in Learning and Teaching Indicators, um, to um, guide their choices, because they include, you know, what are the employment outcomes like? What's the student experience? So they're, so they're looking at different um, factors to determine what their pathway is. But we do need to get more information out to schools and to parents that helps them to see what the choices are. So
0: on that higher apprenticeships model, I know you've been working to roll that out across Australia. What are you starting to see? To me, it seems that, you know, it's quite a brave choice for a young person to take that route and sort of pioneer and moving away mm. from the prestige that maybe would come with with a, with a degree from a university. So uh, what, what are you seeing and what success have you seen so
1: far? Um, it is a brave choice currently because often um, people who decide not to go to university are going against the advice of their parents. They're going against what their peers would expect them to do. They're taking a chance. And because of that, what we find is, They are often really motivated. They're absolutely determined that they're going to show that this was a good choice and that they were going to be successful. So they're very um, driven to to make it work. So they're making a positive choice. I mean, the the feedback has been really good. We've got an 87% success rate on the pilot, which is much higher than other sort of comparable programs. The employers who've been involved, um, you know, want to carry on with it. And we've had a lot of interest from other employers. So I think part of it is about helping people to see that, that it's it, they shouldn't have to fight to make that decision. We need to persuade people that it's actually equally valid. Um, because at the end of the day, a lot of people who who have chosen the higher apprenticeship route have done it because they decided university wasn't for them. They might have tried it and decided not to do it anymore. But again, that comes down to changing perceptions about vocational education. I think employers have a lot of work to do in that area because if employers champion vocational education, that carries a lot more weight than just, say, government mm. saying it's a really good thing. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely agree. Well, congratulations on, on the work so far. I guess really what we're talking about here is what goes back to the essence of the apprenticeship model, doesn't it? And, and, mm. and on the job learning. Uh, you know the model that started in the middle ages Uh, uh, you know the master apprentice it's really modernizing that for today.
1: That's right I mean in the olden days you used to be able to um, you know do a clerkship or an indentured apprenticeship or you know the professions I suppose as they were um, were things you could go into straight from school and just train up and become mm. qualified. Yeah. And then over a period of time, just about every country ended up going down a route where you had to have a degree. Um, and so the whole balance of qualifications and how people got those sort of job roles changed. Now, I think what we're seeing is, is a bit of a rebalancing. Yeah, um, It's not that one route is better than another. It's just that there is more than one way to get to the same place. Absolutely. So one, one
0: thing I think about a lot, with the young pe- young people going into a program like this is is what what maybe are they missing out on by not going to university? I think you know university often is that is that really important time of personal growth. You know a lot of uh, student activism comes out of universities. You know where where people maybe decide their political persuasions. They're exposed to maybe a lot of ideas, people they weren't previously. Uh, so um, what what gets missed in something like uh, this alternative pathway straight into work?
1: It's a really interesting question and one that we put a lot of thought into when we designed the first program we were involved with in the UK. One of the most common um, issues is that when you go to university, you tend to develop a network of, you know, your fellow students um, that generates strong relationships and strong friendships that last throughout your lifetime. And as you move on in jobs, other people move on and you create a big network which is very useful to you often, and it you know keeps you connected with people. Sometimes with apprentices, they might be working in a small organization, they haven't got that network, and they don't um, therefore have that ongoing, widening web of friendships and business relationships. So one of the things that we have focused on um, in higher apprenticeship programs is bringing the apprentices together. Um And in Australia, we did that through having an app that they could connect with each other through they could yep, provide yep, each other with sense. support, mm. and we also brought the employers together and we created sort of a, a network there. We did sessions with them on relationship building and networking um, and about how that can help you in your life and your career. So I think that's one one of the aspects is that connection and creating a mm. um, a cohort feel mm. to it. just to sort of test another another part of this.
0: I think about see how you your view is that you know in in a time where we're going to live a lot longer mm. um, you know we, maybe we're maybe we going to live to 100 plus people that are born today should we even be rushing them out into jobs at, at 18 or or 21 is that potentially too early to start work uh you know, we might we might be living in a time where people are expected to work for 60 70 years is that uh how are you thinking about that
1: I think that sounds to me like we're in charge of what happens. And I'm not sure that that's actually the case. The experience we're having even as an employer is that young people coming into work um, have a different view of what they want to get out of it. There's a lot more focus on the purpose, the purpose of work, why people are doing it. There's a lot more focus on having a range of opportunities. So not even really thinking about going to organizations, staying there for a long time, maybe staying for two years or maybe being able to do that job alongside thinking about their own business or doing some volunteering. And it's not necessarily about straight pathways anymore. So I think people's view of what work is, is changing. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of controversy about the gig economy and is that going to take people into situations where they're not earning enough to live. Mm-hmm. But there are also some lack of
0: rights, for example.
1: Yeah, and lack of rights. I think those things can be worked through in terms of the lack of rights. And what we're sort of also seeing is a positive side to the gig economy where it gives people choice and flexibility so that they can almost, you know, decide how much work they want to do and you know, make choices, I suppose, because there are different options available. So Is it too early to start work straight from school? I don't think so because there are so many different ways of doing it. Um, And I think the whole area of working for longer, again, is the same. So you might, you know, reach 70 and decide that you're only then going to work part time because you want to spend more time, I don't know, on hobbies or keeping fit or whatever it is. So it's not all about it's it's an all or nothing choice.
0: Just back to uh, vocational education and training. Uh, vet review is underway right now in mm-hmm. Australia. A lot of discussion, you know, early in the piece around funding and and, and linking to job outcomes and so forth. But what what fundamental changes would you really like to see?
1: I think one of the things I'd like to see is something that I've already spoken a little bit about, and that is, um, and Stephen Joyce has has mentioned this. He was quite surprised at how little vet options featured when he spoke to people in schools. Absolutely. I would like to see that change. Mm. Um, we did some work last year for um, to look at career and skills pathways and also found that there is a lack of information in schools, often because the schools themselves find it difficult to know where to get information from or what is the most valid and up-to-date information. Therefore, they tend not to give a lot of information about vocational pathways. That has to change because, as I said before, I think vocational education is going to be sort of the engine of, you know, workforce skilling and reskilling. And in addition to that, if we can improve vocational pathways in schools, I think we're giving a richer experience to pupils, Mm. which enables them to have both the sort of traditional learning and foundations um, to take them forward, but also experience some of that work-related or project-related learning.
0: Yeah. Uh, A few of these sort of Options that you've that you've mentioned, and from higher apprenticeships, short courses, and online, and and, and MOOCs, for example, mm. um, overlaid with sort of merging trends of micro credentialing and so forth, is is employer recognition of of all these things going to be the, the the really big change that might need to happen as well, as opposed to the recognition of say the prestigious degree.
1: Mm. It's a really interesting question. I mean, there are a few trends coming along now where employers are less and less looking at people's results. Yeah. You know, you've yeah. got applications for jobs. You've got employers, even us such as ourselves, not looking at ATAR scores or degree outcomes. Um, we're looking at recruiting people on different criteria. That might be, you know, ability to work in a, in a group or a team. It might be communication. It might be entrepreneurialism. It's those sort of qualities that we're looking at, as well as a level of technical knowledge. So, um, yes, employers need to make a shift. Employers definitely need to be thinking about the lifelong learning element Mm -hmm. and how they're going to support that. I mean, if you look at Singapore, where they've launched Skills Future, which is a program that enables individuals at all sorts of levels to continue to upskill and learn and gives incentives to doing that, both to individuals, but also to employers, um, to help their employees to do so. Mm. You know, programs like that, there are other programs in other countries where they are focusing on um, keeping people in work through upskilling. Yeah. Um, It's both a government um, priority, but also it has to be an employer responsibility. And that's
0: a big change, isn't it? And Mm. I think uh, there is a often a feeling that, for example, government should fund training. But so what, what do you really see as the most effective means of, of reskilling our workforce, particularly for the sort of rapidly changing world that, that we are in and increasingly so?
1: The most effective method? Well, I have been thinking a lot about the concept of being a responsible employer yeah. and thinking um, about the effect on your workforce that's going to be happening as a result of change, rapid change. Um, and how you deal with that, and how you invest ahead of the curve so that you know you've got the workforce you need. You've helped them identify the skills gaps, and you've helped them fill them. Mm. Um, the engine of filling those gaps, I, I believe, should be the vocational education system because I think that's, that's really core cool mm. to what vocational education is about. It's about identifying skills and helping people to gain competency and capability in those skills. Now, it might be that that, you know, also goes into the higher education sector, depending on what the job is, because often, you know, if you're talking about advanced manufacturing or engineering, some of the skills will be in really cutting edge new technologies. Yeah. It's not just solely um, for the vocational education providers. This goes all the way through the education continuum. But it really has to be a partnership between the employees and in industry and the education providers. Um, to make this work because mm. we still have a bit of a communication gap between mm. those two parties yeah. and they have to come together mm. to work on um, what are the gaps and how are they going to fill them most effectively and, and in the most um, efficient way. So quickly, um, appropriately, relevant training in the way that both the individual and the employer needs to do it.
0: I think if you if you look at a lot of the skills of the future, they are, a lot of them are very technical in nature, aren't they? Mm. And, uh, you know, right, now, if you look as well now, you know, we're probably going to be in a 10-year infrastructure boom in this country, uh, requiring you know, a huge number of maybe more traditional skills and technical skills. You know, vocational education and, and providers are extremely well placed to, to, to meet this challenge.
1: Yeah, they are. I mean, if you look at the work that we're doing currently in the naval shipbuilding sector, where, um, you know, a whole range of skills are going to be needed over the next 25 years, ranging from advanced techniques in welding to complex project management Mm. and everything in between. Some of those skills are very much in the vocational provider sector, and some of them are in the university sector. So, you know, for one of the first times, we've got everybody in the continuum of education working together to create a seamless pathway oh. so that people can progress through and gain the skills they need at every level. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some of them are very technical.
0: Big topic that comes out, out of all this, and uh, I know you and I have talked about this previously. So I think oh, I already know you've got an interesting view. But um, you know people like Elon Musk who who talks about um, there are going to be fewer and fewer jobs, jobs in the future that robots can't automate, um, and uh, which could lead to mass unemployment hence the requirement for something like the universal wage. Where do you sit on the uh, argument here? Uh, Will we see this mass unemployment or will we create a huge number of new jobs as well that will replace the, the old?
1: I'm at the end of the spectrum that says that we will create a huge number of new jobs that will replace the old. And that's really based on the fact that it's not full jobs necessarily that will be disrupted and taken away. It's the routine manual tasks that can easily be automated. Um, and so, what I think we'll see is a shift in the types of job roles um, and new job roles emerging. Now, what it does mean is that people who were doing those routine sort of non cognitive tasks are going to need quite a lot of reskilling. And that really needs to start now in schools in terms of giving people a different skill set, an adaptable skill set, a skill set that it does involve technology and digital skills and analytical skills as far as possible, but also the toolkit to adapt more quickly to changing circumstances. So all the things about communication and creativity and personal career management and all of those sort of other enabling skills are very important. So I think there's going to be major change, but I don't think it's going to result in mass employment, especially if we go down the responsible employer route. Mm, Absolutely. Mm. Employers, employers really do have to step up and think about their workforce mm. and managing that mm. process. Um, and I think most of the employers that I talk to do not want to end up with mass unemployment and mm. putting people onto welfare. They want to think about ways of doing it. I think the the issue at the moment is they find that very difficult. They're not sure how to do it. Mm. They know they've got to do it, but they're not sure how to do it. And one of the things that needs to change as we've mentioned before, is how the education system works with business and industry. Absolutely. So what does Australia's education sector look like in 20
0: years from now? How do you see the tertiary education sector operating?
1: I think it will be working hand in hand with industry and business, a much closer alignment. I think we'll have a lot more bite-sized courses and qualifications built up of smaller chunks. I think the ability to create new courses and curriculum and standards will be much quicker. So we'll have solved some of those issues about the length of time it takes to create a new course because we'll have to. We'll have to do that. Otherwise, Australia will not remain globally competitive.
0: I think it it really sort of strikes me that whilst there's threats to Australian education, you know, the, the marketplace and the economy of skills are essentially globalized. The opportunity is, is clearly massive as well. So you know, what ad, what advice would you have for you know, the education provider, particularly vocational education providers, you know, right, right here now today?
1: I would say get involved in talking to employers yeah. about their business and getting to really understand what's happening. Think with an open mind about opportunities to help them Make these changes and how you can modify the way you do things such that you're creating a partnership, so mm-hmm. if an employer needs a particular skill set, how do they want it delivered? You might currently do it um, as like a i don't know a twenty five hour course based in an institution. Can you do it faster, and can you do it on the employer's premises? How do you change your model of delivery yeah. and we've seen that happen really successfully in higher apprenticeships, where the training providers completely changed their model they changed the some of the content in qualifications Mm. to align it to the job role and they changed the delivery so that a lot more was in the employer's own workplace which is much easier for both the individual and the employer to cope with so i think that needs to happen to make this succeed
0: i think it's interesting we keep coming back to this this point of uh, education and employers just working Mm. more hand in glove right
1: Yeah, we're doing some work at the moment looking at industry 4.0 and how employers are feeling about um, the changes that are coming along in the sort of manufacturing and advanced manufacturing world. One of the findings is that whilst employers are interested in industry 4.0 they're not still not quite sure what it means for them and how it's going to affect their business and then following on from that how they're going to change to remain again globally competitive because other countries are changing rapidly and we don't want australia to fall behind in terms of how they manufacture how they produce how they get products to market and all of those sort of areas so again they are needing to work hand in hand with the mm. education system to say, okay, yep. let's take on these new technologies. Let's retrain mm. our people. Let's make sure that we are operating at the cutting edge of manufacturing so that we can be fast, competitive, efficient. Because I think,
0: really think about it, em- employers don't really want to take on the job of the education themselves, right? And I'm sure they will if they have to. Mm. You know, and educators, what are they, you know, their, their absolute expertise is in delivering that education.
1: That's right. I think the issue has always been marrying the two things up. Employers think that they know what the skills they they need are. Education providers have a suite of products that they offer. Sometimes the two things don't come together and that's the bit that needs Mm. to
0: align. I think you might have, you sort of feel that there's also the innovator's dilemma here that some educators might not be willing to disrupt their own models.
1: I think that's undoubtedly true. I know that there are education providers at all levels who feel that their model is tried and tested. It has been over a number of years, maybe even centuries, and that it will endure. And that might be the case for a small number of education providers, whether higher vocational whatever. But I don't think that's going to be the norm.
0: Side question. What would you advise a young person at school today, bright spark in their teenage years, about to leave school? What do you tell them about the education and work of the future?
1: I would say do something that is interesting, challenging, you feel a passion for, and that is going to give you a range of skills. It's going to give you some depth, and it's also going to give you those sort of enabling skills or enterprise skills that I was talking about, because both of them are necessary but I don't think it's important to agonize over that choice mm. and think is this right is this wrong am I going to be able to change you know what happens if yeah. I make the wrong choice I really don't think you need to do that because you make a choice and you'll learn so much from that choice anyway that yeah. is applicable you know across a whole range of jobs or if you want to carry on study you don't need to be afraid frightened of making a mistake
0: the experiences I've had schools seem to be quite a long way from that at the moment certainly still obviously you know pushing through uh, you know one pathway be it university or whatever else so have you seen the start of change there in schools you know is government aware and ready to step in and fix some of this
1: I think that I mean schools are increasingly looking at how they can incorporate things like project-based learning yeah. or thematic learning how they can make links with employers. And we work with a school in Western Sydney on helping them with their STEM curriculum and, you know, creating activities for the pupils, going and helping them assess what they've done. Increasingly, uh, schools are doing that because they're recognizing the value of that to their pupils. We just need to help to mainstream that so that every pupil in every school gets that sort of choice. If you look at what's happening in education policy and curriculum, every state and territory is thinking about how they can create a more future-focused yeah. approach. And the, um, there's going to be the inclusion of things like critical thinking yep. into the curriculum. What I'm slightly worried about is that a lot of the skills that we need young people to have, those things that I've mentioned before about communication, um, critical thinking, problem solving, a lot of those are about how you do things. They don't need to be subjects in the curriculum, so we don't need to keep stuffing more into mm-hmm. the, the sort of timetable we need to be thinking about how we teach and how people learn and using those opportunities to create those skills. Oh. Yes, it's more difficult to assess them, but that's what how we need to help people oh. to be prepared. I think you sort of overlay that as well with this,
0: this huge problem of... Um anxiety and and depression in young people, Mm. which uh, are obviously not helped by potentially things like being connected, digitally connected for long parts of the day. A lot of this also seems to me is maybe releasing some of the pressure as to where their life might take them career wise could actually be uh, part of the solution. Mm.
1: I was talking to somebody today who was telling me that the latest statistics are that six out of 10 pupils in school um, would say that they have a mental health. Issue.
0: That's extraordinarily high.
1: Yeah, some of that, you know, there are a whole range of reasons why that might be. Yeah. And also that young people are getting better about talking about how they feel. Yeah. But I think anything we can do to understand the factors that are um, affecting that and creating that and to um, find ways of reducing right. those factors would be a good thing. I mean, I can't, I don't know whether. You know, exam stress or pressure to choose a particular pathway is part of it. But if it was, yeah, yeah, we can we can change that. Yeah.
0: So look, thank you so much for being here. It's a fascinating discussion. I feel like we're going to have to have you back in the future. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Love to. If you'd be so kind. (laughs) Yes, very much
0: so. Uh, So any any final thoughts for uh, for our listeners uh, where the world of work and education uh, will take us? Maybe uh, what mindset do we all need to face the future?
1: Well, we need a learning mindset. We have to acknowledge that we are going to continue to learn throughout our lives, that's a good thing. You know, learning new things keeps your mind active as well as giving you new opportunities to, you know, change job or mentor somebody or whatever, you know, learning throughout life um, has been talked about for a long, long time. But I think now is the time that it's really going to become a reality for everybody.
0: Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate not just your time, but your passion uh, to make a a positive change. And uh, also really enjoy your positive and optimistic view uh, that all the jobs won't be destroyed in the future as well. So thanks for that. Thank you again, Sarah Kaplan. Thank you.